you please open up your copies of God's Word and join me in the book of Colossians that we'll be starting this evening. We'll be looking tonight at chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 of the book of Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. As you get situated there, I'll situate us as a congregation in some little bit of context for this book. Uh, Colossians is sort of as an epistle as it is, uh, is an important one, is a... Is a uh, a foundational one, especially as we near the Christmas season and we reflect, as we've mentioned already, upon Jesus and his incarnation, the fact that he became man. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul around the exact same time as his other two letters to the Ephesians and the Philippians, roughly around A.D. 62, and all from the same place. Uh, Paul didn't let his imprisonment in Rome Uh, make him lazy or make him idle. He wrote all three of these letters while he was in prison there in Rome. Uh, It was written to the church in the city of Colossae, a fairly large city, an important one, a considerable one in the empire uh, near the city of Fergia. uh, uh, I'm sorry, in the province of Fergia, it was near the cities that you've probably heard of, uh, Laodicea and Heropolis. Now, much like his letter to the church at Rome, Colossians was written to believers that Paul himself had never even met. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. Paul had never met the believers in the church at Colossae. Paul had never stepped foot inside their place of worship. Paul had never seen their faces. He wouldn't recognize them if they walked across his path. And yet, that did not stop this church from flourishing. It didn't stop this church from flourishing. And it didn't stop Paul from being concerned for this church. For having a deep concern and love for the believers here. For praying for them and ministering to them. For instance, through this very letter. Uh, The church was actually planted uh, by the ministry of someone that we don't hear a lot about. But Epaphras. Uh, Yet, And we see it doesn't slow down Paul at all in his love and concern for these believers here at Colossae. Paul, out of his love for his brothers and sisters in this church that he had never even come in contact with personally, uh, writes this epistle uh, chiefly as a warning. As a warning. Paul warns them here in this book of the dangers, on the one hand, of the Jewish zealots who were pressuring them uh, uh, to be bound by the ceremonial laws that we find in the Old Testament. And on the other hand, they were faced with growing pressures to mix pagan Gentile philosophy with their doctrines of Christ. And Paul here, throughout the letter, appeals to his brothers and sisters uh, to continue in steadfastness. Uh, This is not one of those letters where we see Paul rebuking, really, or or getting on too much. It's honestly a very encouraging letter. The the Christians here have done well by Paul's estimate, and he's encouraging them throughout to, to continue doing exactly that. Uh, to fight the good fight, to stand against the pressures of the culture around them, uh, to continue in steadfastness and perseverance as they look to the founder and perfecter of their faith, as they look to the superiority of the God-man, Jesus, over every human philosophy, over every human tradition. And I believe that this is a message that is just as relevant and necessary and important for us here today in 21st century America as it was for this church at Colossae some 2,000 years ago. I think we're going to see a lot of overlap. And that's the book of Colossians in 
a nutshell. It's what we'll be beginning tonight. It's what we'll be going through uh, for probably quite some time. Uh, as short of a book as it is, there's, there's a lot to divulge here. And so Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. If you haven't turned there already, please do so. Uh, but before we go to God in his word, uh, would you join me one more time as we go to him in prayer? Almighty God, gracious Father, we thank you for the gift which is your word. We pray as we hear it preached tonight that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts and make them receptive to receive your word as it is preached. Father, we pray that as we look at our identities as people and as Christians tonight in your word, uh, that you would help us to stand firm in the truths that we read tonight. And in the midst of cultural pressures from every side, trying to tell us who we are and what we are and all the questions and doubts that we find in our current culture concerning those things, Father, we pray that you would help us to stand in certainty upon the word of God. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray that your church and kingdom would be furthered and expanded. And we pray that your people here tonight would be benefited, edified, encouraged, and challenged. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is indeed God's holy, authoritative, infallible word. Hear it now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God bless the reading and hearing of it tonight. Amen. Who am I? What am I? What is my identity? These have always been important questions. I don't think there's ever been a time or a generation or a culture that haven't pondered these things at various ages and at various times. These have always been important questions. But, but I would uh, take a guess here and would make a claim that I think is safe to make that there has likely never been a generation or a culture more burdened and obsessed by these questions than ours today. Our culture is, I think, truly in the midst of what we could fairly call an identity crisis. On both a macro level as a nation, we're losing track of who we are and, and what we are, and at a micro level as individuals. I think we see more conversations, discussions, news articles, blog posts, and books about how someone identifies in any given month today than we would have in a lifetime pre-2010. I, I really do. Anywhere you look, any social media site you turn to, any news station you turn on, you find these discussions taking place about identity, how someone self-identifies. It's these questions, who am I? What am I? What is my identity? Well, today in God's Word, in these short two verses, we find the Apostle Paul answering these truly important questions from arguably the only perspective that really matters, from God's, our Creator and Redeemer, the one who knows these answers better than anyone else, the only one who truly gives us our identity in any meaningful way that matters. 
Paul addresses our identity as Christians tonight in three ways in these opening verses. But what I find interesting, and I would draw your attention to immediately at the start, is that in every single one of these ways that God outlines for us our identities as Christians tonight, they're all in the context of relationships. Every single one of them that we're going to look at tonight. Think about that. God in his inerrant, infallible, sufficient, everlasting, authoritative word identifies Christians here by our relationships. And so we see that in a very real sense, I think it's safe to say, as Christians, there's a real sense in which we are identified by our relationships. You know, I I think about how often my mom told me when I was making friends as a kid, especially as I got to middle school and high school, and, and maybe was making not the best decisions always in the friends I chose to pick. Uh, I, I can hear my mom's words in the back of my head. Uh, Birds of a feather flock together, Danny. Uh, you know, be careful who you hang around. Be more cautious about the people you keep in your company. I think my mom was right, and I think we see some of that here tonight. We are identified, at least in part, in a real way by our relationships. And so we're going to see those three ways tonight is that we are identified as Christians, we are shaped by, our identities are shaped by our relationship to God, our relationship to the church, and our relationship to Christ. We see that our identities as Christians are shaped by our relationship to God, our relationship to the church, and third and finally by our relationship to Christ. And so we see firstly, if you would look with me in your copies of God's Word in verse 2, that our identity is shaped by our relationship to God. Look at who Paul addresses. He says, to the saints at Colossae. And let's be honest, this whole little first section is a part that I think most of us skip over. I was, uh, confession moment, I was telling Brian uh, a few days ago, um, as I was originally slotted uh, to preach, and I was going to begin uh, going through the book of Colossians uh, the, the week before Thanksgiving. And so I had a, a very conveniently timed Thanksgiving sermon uh, looking at the first eight verses on thankfulness here in Colossians. It was appropriately timed, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Uh, but the Lord and His sovereignty had other plans. Uh, we had to go to Grenada for, for the death of my grandfather. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful in part for that, because I was tempted to do, I think, what we often are, which is to skip over these introductions. Uh, right? We, we, we skip over uh, about halfway through Exodus, through Deuteronomy. We skip over genealogies and we skip over introductions. I think more than any others, we spend time personally in our studies of God's Word. And I would encourage you tonight uh, uh, to see not to do that. Paul addresses the saints at Colossae. What does that mean? What is a saint? Who are saints? What what does it mean to be a saint? Uh, The Greek word used here is is a word, uh, uh, hagios. Hagios, it it literally means the holy ones. Paul is addressing the holy ones at the church at Colossae. It's the idea of being sacred, pure, consecrated. It's when something is set apart from a common use... For a sacred use. Holy. It means to be holy. It's the exact same word used of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. Every time you'll find an occurrence of the word Holy Spirit, it's this word hagios. It's the word used of Jesus himself. In John 6, when he's referred to as the Holy One of God. 
in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Jewish Old, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the word used by the prophet Isaiah to describe God in chapter 6. That he is holy, holy, holy. He's hagias, hagias, hagias. And so Paul addresses believers with that exact same word. With the same exact word that the scriptures use to describe every person of the triune Godhead. Holy. The believers are holy ones. Saints. Consecrated. Pure. Set apart. Different than the world. I don't think this is the way that we most commonly think of it if we're being honest with ourselves. Uh, We're close enough uh, to that state beneath us, Louisiana, uh, that Roman Catholic influence I think is here enough that if we're honest with ourselves, usually when we think about this word, we think of it through a Roman Catholic lens, do we not? As as a subset of Christians, right? What we might call super-Christians, this concept of, of sainthood. The way they use it is to refer to a certain elite special subset of Christianity. Those who are super pious, extra Christian, the ones who do really good works all the time. Those who had so much obedience to Christ in this life by Roman Catholic understanding that when they died, that they actually had extra grace left over. So much so, in fact, that the rest of us normal, ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christians can access it if only we do things like pray to those saints, these super-Christians. But brothers and sisters, I I really hope that we're all on the same page tonight. But that's not remotely biblical. It's not remotely biblical. That is not the biblical concept of sainthood at all. Not even remotely. You know, as as we have a few students this year in our youth group uh, getting ready to graduate and to go off to college and and making those decisions, uh, uh, many of them in the last few weeks, pray for them if you think about it, lift them up in prayer, uh, are going through exams like the ACTs and the SATs. And there's a lot of stress and and anxiety that comes along with this. Uh, You know, it, it doesn't matter how bad you want to get into a specific school if you don't meet the test scores, right? There's certain test scores that are required of any university, especially if you want to get into uh, an elite, prestigious, private, exclusive university, you have to make certain top-notch grades and scores on exams like your SATs and your ACTs. You have to have straight A's, and if it's an exclusive enough university, you better have straight A pluses. You have to have a certain crazy amount. Uh, this isn't something that we had when I was in high school, at least that I wasn't aware of. Uh, you should know how much volunteer work the students here in this church do. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and I, I say that also for you if you're looking for some yard work. I guarantee you, you have some students here in this church that are looking to meet some service hours. They have a ridiculously absurd, and I feel like it gets worse every year that these colleges place on them to meet these standards just to get their foot in the door. But I would encourage you tonight, brothers and sisters, that sainthood doesn't work that way. Sainthood does not work that way. And so we need to be clear on, on a few levels. On the one hand, as, as we think about our conversations and our discussions with unbelievers, that there are no amount of works, there are no amount of deeds that you can do to get to this. There's no spiritual SAT that you can take and make a good enough score on to achieve sainthood. God has commanded us not just to be holy, but to be holy as He is holy. 
that's pretty holy, right? It doesn't get any holier than God himself is holy. And that's the level of holiness that God has required of us. Yet Isaiah says of unregenerate man that our sins have made us anything but holy. In fact, Isaiah says that our sins are so great that they have made a great chasm between us and our Creator. That our sins separate us from God. We are sinful creatures. He is the Holy Creator. And no amount of works or deeds or doctrine can elevate us to the point that we would need to get to in order to enter sainthood. It is only by God's working. Through His Holy Spirit entering you, do you become holy as God is holy. It's only through the Holy Spirit, through the new birth, regeneration, does one become a saint. It's only through the work of Christ, not yours. So for my brothers and sisters, I I would offer you this encouragement, hopefully, that if you are in Christ, if God has saved you, if He has filled you with His Holy Spirit, if you indeed are a Christian... You are a saint. Period. There's not a comma after that. There's not a dot, dot, dot. It is a period. You are a saint. You have been consecrated. God has set you apart from common use to a sacred use, to a sacred purpose. You are now sacred, pure, holy. You have been set apart by the free, sovereign grace of God for the sacred mission of God. Every one of you in here who knows Christ. And so if you find yourself struggling with self-image, as so many today do, if you find yourself struggling with the fear that you are simply one mistake, one sin, one error in judgment away from God's love for you dissipating in a moment, from God abandoning you, Because of this thought that we sometimes have, right? How could God love someone as messed up as me? If you feel shame and guilt because of even the thought of your sins, take heart, brother and sister. Christian, you are holy. You are a saint. But with this encouragement also comes a challenge. You are a saint. So live like it. You are a saint. So do the things that saints are supposed to do. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that you are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that you should walk in them. As you go about in your day-to-day life. As you come, as you go, as you enter the workplace, your hobbies, your friends, your families. As you go about at Christmas time enjoying the holiday that it is. Do the things that saints do. Walk in these good works that have been prepared beforehand for you. How do we live like a saint? Let's make it simple. Love that which he loves. Hate that which he hates. Be about his mission and his glory. Be a saint. And so we see first that our identity is shaped by our relationship to God. But we also see secondly in his word, if you look at verse 2, that our identity is shaped by our relationship to the church. Our relationship to the church. Look at who he addresses again. To the faithful brothers at Colossae. To the faithful brothers. What does he mean by faithful brothers? What's the focus on here? Is, is the focus on them being faithful? 
Or is the focus on them being brothers? Paul is referring to them, the church at Colossae, as family. Which is interesting, especially as we mentioned earlier, considering that Paul has never even met these people. Paul doesn't personally know them. He wouldn't recognize their faces. He doesn't know what their homes look like. He's likely never walked down the streets of their town. He doesn't know where they shop. He doesn't know what they do for hobbies. He's never been in their place of worship, and yet he refers to them in these familial terms. They are his brothers. They are his sisters. They are his family. And he is willing to, if you look ahead to verse 24, he's willing even to suffer for them. Why? Because they're his family, and he loves them as such, and he thinks of them as such. And so the focus here is not just on these Christians' fidelity to Jesus. Paul is also very much so pointing to the reality that they were brothers in faith, much how we would refer to soldiers as brothers in arms. The church is our family. They're our brothers and sisters. And these are what we sometimes get caught up in uh, 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 what we might call Christianese, right? If you've grown up in the church, if you've been in any time at all, we say things like this without giving any thought, right? Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. Maybe not so much as Presbyterians. I don't feel like we hear it as much. Uh, But if you grew up Baptist like me, or maybe non-denominational, or especially like my grandmother, Pentecostal, uh, man, you hear this all the time. It's always brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. But I've always wondered how much regard and thought is actually given to that phrase. We, we say these things, and then, I'm just going to be honest, most of us, when we say that, we go the whole week without ever even thinking about those people again until we see them again on Sunday. I don't know if that's what the New Testament had in mind. The church is our family, and much more specifically, we here at New Covenant are family. We are brothers and sisters, and so we should live like it. Now, how do we do that? Paul commands us in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. I I find this to be one of the most succinct, helpful passages when considering how to live out these familial relationships within the church. He commands us to love one another with brotherly affection. That we are to outdo one another in showing honor. We're not to be slothful in zeal, but rather to be fervent in spirit. We are to serve the Lord. We are to rejoice in hope. We're to be patient in tribulation. That means even with our brothers and sisters who are sometimes causing the tribulation. We're to be constant in prayer, even for those brothers and sisters who are sometimes causing the tribulation. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints, and we are to seek to show hospitality. And so how do we live out these familiar relationships? How do we show that these are our truly, that we see each other at New Covenant as brothers and sisters? I think God would commend to you from his word, be generous. Be generous with your affections. Be generous with your patience. That one's hard. Be generous with your prayers. Be generous with your finances. Be generous with your time and resources in hospitality with your brothers and sisters in Christ here at New Covenant. Remember what Jesus himself said. The outsiders, those outside these walls, will recognize us as different. They'll they'll recognize us as his disciples, as his followers. Not because our doctrine is so good, not because we have the shorter catechism memorized to a T. It's important. He'll recognize us what? By our love that we have for one another. This is how we stand out. This is how we look different to the world. And what an encouragement. What a welcome. 
to those who come especially from broken homes themselves. What an encouragement and a welcome to those who maybe grew up with no real family at all. Or those who simply find themselves feeling out of place. That feel without a home or without a people. God would offer you this promise in His Word from Ephesians 2.19. That regardless of what your personal background is with your family or lack thereof, that if you come to Christ, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And man, that's the family that we should want to be a part of. And so we see that our identity is shaped first by our relationship to God, second by our relationship to the church, and third and finally, arguably most importantly, by our relationship to Christ. By our relationship to Christ. Look again with me at verse 2. Paul addresses them to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In Christ. What does this mean? What, what does the phrase in Christ mean? mean. Uh, we could spend all night talking about that. Uh, there are entire books dedicated to this. And Paul himself, I think this is Paul's, maybe his favorite phrase that he uses in the New Testament. This phrase, in Christ, is a dominating feature of the Apostle Paul's letters. Every single one of them. It is the, the primary way in which Paul understands both his identity and the identity of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you glance over back a couple of books to the book of Ephesians, we read this phrase repeated constantly. Paul says we were predestined in Christ. He says we were chosen in Christ. He says that we were sealed by the Spirit, and just in case you thought he missed that one, in Christ. Even just scan through the book of Colossians, and you'll find this phrase repeated over and over. It dominates this epistle. It dominates Paul's self-identification in the way in which he identifies fellow Christians. Look with me as we just speedily glance through the book of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 14. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, in Christ. Verses 15 through 20. We're told that creation and redemption are in Christ and through Christ and by Christ. Verse 22, we're told that we are reconciled to God in Christ's body by His death. Verse 27, Paul tells us that his ministry of the gospel, which he speaks of, is literally Christ in you, the hope of glory. And guys, that's just chapter 1. That's just chapter 1. And so let's look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul tells us, are you guessed it, in Christ. Verses 6 through 7, Paul tells us that when we became Christians, we received Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11, it's in, and Paul messed it up for me here, the rhythm we had going, in him, he doesn't say in Christ, but we know who he's talking about. In him, we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul tells us we died with Christ. And chapter 3, verse 1, we were raised to new life with Christ. Do you get the idea yet? This is the primary way in which the Apostle Paul identifies himself, the primary way in which he identifies Christians, and it should be the primary way in which Christians identify themselves. And may I add, with nothing else tacked on, 
we are in Christ. And it is only by virtue of being in Christ that we are justified, that we are adopted, that we are sanctified, and that we have an inheritance in glory. It isn't because of anything we've done. It's only because we are in Christ. Because Christ has secured these things. And see, this is the truth that many don't like to accept. Many, I grew up in a family with not many Christians. And there's this thought process that a lot of non-Christians, especially those who might be a little bit antagonistic towards us and what we believe, have towards Christians uh, that we're robots, right? Ironically, they call us sheep. Like, that's an insult. Uh, that, That we're just... We're almost, you know, just going through the motions as slaves, so to speak. Once again, kind of ironic. But the reality is that they don't realize is they are too. Every human being on this planet only has two options. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Our default is the former. All men and women after the fall, by our very nature... Everyone who descended from Adam by ordinary generation are in Adam. And in Adam, in this family, we get sin and misery and death. But in Christ, we get redemption and joy and life. You know, Paul spends the second half of the book, uh, of the chapter uh, uh, 5 of Romans, and the entirety of chapter 6 espousing this in great detail. I would, I would encourage you, if you're looking for a passage to read for family worship tonight, go, go there and reflect upon these truths. And so for the unregenerate, the non-Christian, those who would think themselves autonomous, that they are charting out their own lives, please know that that's an illusion. You are in Adam, and as a result, enslaved to sin, destined for all the miseries of this life, and death both physical and spiritual. Turn to Christ. Flee to Him. And as Acts 8.22 says, repent of your wickedness. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. But for my brothers and sisters, for my fellow saints, rejoice. Rejoice in knowing that even on your absolute worst days, you are in Christ. And He is in you. And therefore, when God looks upon you, do you know what He sees? He sees the perfect, blameless righteousness of Christ. This identity of yours can't be shaken. It cannot be undone. It cannot be altered. It cannot be taken away. God's love for you is no more at risk of changing than His love for Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. And so we should have the mindset that Paul did in Galatians 2.20. When he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are in Christ. And so now we should aim to live as Christ himself did. This is literally, at a basic level, what it means to be a Christian. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, in the midst of a time where everybody is confused about what their identity is, what even is an identity, know from God's Word itself that our identity is shaped 
shaped in an unchangeable, unalterable way by our relationship to God, you're saints. By our relationship to the church, we're family. And by our relationship to Christ, you are in Christ and He is in you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's good. It's fruitful. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would take hold of this sword which is the Word of God. That You would use it to pierce us. Pierce us to our souls, to our minds, to our hearts. Father, we pray in the hope of Isaiah 55, knowing that this Word of Yours, when it goes forth, it will not return to You void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you have purposed it. And Father, I pray that that purpose for my brothers and sisters and for myself would be encouragement, would be edification, would be uplifting, especially for those who need it. Father, we pray that you would help us to stand firm in these truths, knowing that our identities have been determined by our Creator and our Redeemer. So help us, Father. Help us to be encouraged by these truths and help us to live them out in our day-to-day life. Help us as we go forth to live lives as saints, as holy ones. In our interactions with our brothers and sisters, especially here at New Covenant, that you would help us to live as family. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we go forth, day in and day out, morning, noon, and night, and everything in between, to remember that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. We pray this in his most blessed name. Amen.